You're listening to the Curiosity Collective podcast, and I'm Deepika. Now, a few weeks ago, the core team of the Curiosity Collective had gathered in Bangalore to plan and think about how to extend our work of building communities of care and practice. It was still pretty early in the cycle of the virus, and we were reading about its spread in other countries, and it had just about made its entry into India. And now, even though we anticipated the kinds of measures that might be put in place in the country, I don't think any of us can claim that we were actually prepared for what has been unfolding. And I guess this is the difference between knowing and experiencing something. It's now day eight of the lockdown in India, and I think suffice to say, life as we know it has changed pretty rapidly these past few weeks. So we're doing things a little differently this month of April because we're all homebound in different cities and felt that we need to respond to the situation we find ourselves in. So this month, we're shifting out of our usual format, and we're going to try to look at what living in the time of COVID-19 or the coronavirus is bringing up, and just how that might be connected to the larger idea of human and planetary well-being. Also, more importantly, here at TCC, we want our reflections and actions to be in sync. So we asked ourselves this additional question. When we're all physically apart, what does it mean to practice care and connection? But first, I want to backtrack a little to March 19th. I just returned to Mumbai from Bangalore. And yes, I took the recommended precautions and stayed home and isolated myself. Now, this was a few days before all international flights were cancelled. And shortly after that, all domestic flights were grounded. Now, on landing in Mumbai, my taxi driver looked relieved to see me. And as soon as we set out, he struck up a conversation asking how many people were on my flight. I remember the photograph I'd taken and sent to my parents of row upon row of empty seats. And I told him there were around 25. He was quiet for a moment and then he said that he'd been waiting at the airport since midnight yesterday and I was finally his first passenger. I glanced at the time and it was around 2pm. So basically that meant a 14-hour wait for him. And then I remembered the number and the booking count in the airport which showed that 47 cars were still waiting for passengers. There's a quiet acknowledgement then between us that everything's shutting down, you know, from workplaces to shops to transportation, literally life as we know it. And with everything that's pulling down its shutters, increasing uncertainty and fear of what to expect. Then as we were driving down, he pointed towards this blur of high rises and, and he said to me, Is bimari ko paise se koi lena dena nahi hai? Isse koi farak nahi padta ki kaun ameer hai aur kaun garib? Ye hindu muslim ki parwa nahi karti. सारे नेता लोग बस हमें एक दूसरे के खिलाफ करना चाहते हैं मगर ये कोरोना हिंदुओं या मुसलमानों को नहीं ढूंढ रही है शायद इस सब के गुजर जाने के बाद हम स्कूल और अस्पतालों को बनाने पे ध्यान देंगे वेरी सिंपली दैट द वायरस डजेंट केयर अबाउट मनी और हु हैज मनी डजेंट केयर अबाउट हु बिलोंग्स टू विच रिलीजन एंड वाइल्ड पॉलिटिशन आर बिजी क्रिएटिंग ऑल दीज डिविजन नॉट गोइंग अराउंड चूजिंग वन ऑफ दर कम्युनिटी And what I found interesting was that he said, you know, that after all this, hopefully they'll actually spend time and effort and money on focusing on what's important, like education and health. Now at home later, I found myself chewing on what he said, specifically to the reference he made to deepening divisions between communities over the past couple of years along religious and caste lines. I'd studied history in college and it had allowed me to consider for the first time how violence is so closely intertwined with identity politics. 
And at different times in history across the world, we've seen this play out along religious, racial, or social or cultural identities. In India, for instance, it's taken place in terms of violence between Hindus and Muslims, against Dalits, women, and tribal groups. Now, much of the literature on the subject describes a process called othering, or as John Powell, who's the director at the Haas Institute for a Fair and Inclusive Society at the University of California, Berkeley, puts it, othering is not about liking or disliking someone. It's based on the conscious or unconscious assumption that a certain identified group poses a threat to the favored group. Or to put it differently, it's a process which narrowly defines who qualifies as a full member of society. Everyone left out of this definition is basically othered. So it becomes this us-versus-them narrative. And who gets defined as the other changes from place to place. So again, based on language or race or nationality or religion. And then consequently, care and protection is extended only towards those who are a part of the us. Now, Nicholas A. Christakis, a sociologist and physician, writes in his book, Blueprint, The Evolutionary Origins of a Good Society. Seeing people only as members of a group is inherently reductionist and dehumanizing. People in crowds often act in thoughtless ways, shouting profanities, destroying property, throwing bricks, threatening others. This can come about partly because of a process known to psychologists as de-individualization. People begin to lose their self-awareness and sense of individual agency as they identify more strongly with a group which often leads to antisocial behaviors they would never consider if they were acting alone. They can form a mob, cease to think for themselves, lose their moral compass and adopt a classic us-versus-them stance that brooks no shared understanding. Now what he's saying is that when you look at a person with the singular notion of their belonging to a particular group and then go on to make assumptions about that group, you basically lose sight of the detail. You lose the individual and any connection you might have with that person. And so it becomes easier to commit violence because you're no longer viewing them as another human being. Now, in the second half of 2019 in India, with the Citizenship Amendment Act and the National Register for Citizens, what would otherwise make the seem as a rather academic conversation in terms of othering and identity and politics has actually become quite real for many of us. Because every single day, we were posed with questions of who is an Indian and who is the other and who is this non-Indian. And this isn't just something that's playing out in India. World over, we're seeing increasing incidents of this othering. In neighboring Myanmar, for instance, thousands of Rohingyas have been driven from their homes and denied a full citizenship. In the US, neo-Nazis have been marching through the streets of Charlottesville in the state of Virginia and the U.S. president has been wanting to build a wall at the U.S.-Mexico border. The agenda is the same everywhere. It's the creation and use of fear to breed resentment against those who are deemed as the other. And in terms of the rhetoric and the language that's used, it's amplified by political parties and media houses. Now, in many ways, the coronavirus has exposed and laid bare some of these false separations that we've created. Because at a very fundamental level, it challenges these divisions because a virus doesn't actually discriminate. Or as the taxi driver put it, Corona's not going around seeing who's Hindu or Muslim. It's not choosing whose body will be affected based on religion or wealth or caste or class or color. And in that respect, it's reminding us that we're all part of this one large shared ecosystem. 
So we might have drawn boundaries across, you know, our physical and social worlds, but the very speed and virulence with which it's spreading reflects some complete utter contempt for all these imagined boundaries we've drawn up. And the last week alone, whether it's Delhi, Bangalore, London, or friends in Oslo or New York, everyone who has reached out or who have checked in on are experiencing similar states of isolation and lockdown. There's uncertainty, there's fear, restlessness, anger, worry for grandparents and you know those living with complicated medical issues. And that shared fear and worry is also an experience that's common to all of us. And it's ironic that social distancing has become a lesson in interconnectedness because we're now not just responsible for our own health, but literally every decision we take affects not just closest to us, but also neighbors and community members like the vegetable shop I visit or the chai wala or the chemist I go to. And that's how closely all of us are connected. So at one level, we're all facing the same threat. And in that sameness, there's evidence of our shared humanity. But that connection is also immensely powerful, given that it can influence people up to three degrees away. Now, Christakis studies this in his book, Connected, the Surprising Power of Our Social Networks and How They Shape Our Lives. And he uses an example saying, We discovered that if your friend's friend's friend gained weight, you gained weight. We discovered that if your friend's friend's friend stopped smoking, you stopped smoking. And we discovered if your friend's friend's friend became happy, you became happy. Now, by that argument, influence can be used to shape a response, even touching the life of someone you don't directly know or that you normally would come in contact with. Now, what you might be wondering is, what does this have to do with responding to a pandemic? But looking at this at the level of a social network, it actually throws up immense possibilities. Most of us are already aware of the direct effect we have on our friends and family. Our actions can make them happy or sad, healthy or sick, or even rich or poor. But we rarely consider that everything we think, feel, do or say can spread far beyond the people we know. Conversely, our friends and family serve as conduits for us to be influenced by hundreds or even thousands of other people. In a kind of chain reaction, we can be deeply affected by events we do not witness that happen to people we do not know. It is as if we can feel the pulse of the social world around us and respond to its persistent rhythms. As a part of a social network, we transcend ourselves for the good or ill and become a part of something much larger. We are connected. So, even though we might seem separated by the limits of our bodies, the networks that we inhabit are alive and binding us together in this shared experience of the world. Now, what we choose to do with that connection is key. So will it reaffirm our shared humanity or is it going to reinforce existing biases and deepen disparity? Now, even as it's evident that the virus doesn't have favorites, we're already seeing old patterns of separation and discrimination that are just glaringly visible in terms of the human response to the virus in India. Now, if you look at this at a national level, in terms of government planning, there's been a complete and utter disregard for the lives and the lived realities of daily wage and migrant workers. Soon after the nationwide lockdown was announced on March 24th, reports began coming in of people having to walk over hundreds and hundreds of kilometers to go back to their villages. Exodus that hasn't been seen in India in decades. Thousands of migrant workers are on the move, most of them on foot. 
among them Yogesh Yadav, who's walking 650 kilometers through the state of Uttar Pradesh after the clothing shop at which he worked as a tailor was closed. Human rights groups say India's lockdown has disproportionately affected migrant and daily wage workers. Now, some would argue that they were meant to stay in the cities that they'd come to find work in. But in the absence of planning, in the absence of shelters, places they could go to stay, in the absence of organization of food, of, of cash transfers being made to alleviate their everyday situation, what were people to do? And now, if you look at cities, in the last week alone, healthcare professionals have been asked to vacate rented accommodation for fear of their spreading the virus. Similar treatment has been meted out to airline staff who have been stigmatized and harassed by neighbors. In Delhi, a young woman from Manipur was spat on and called Corona. In Mysore, young men from Nagaland were refused entry into a grocery store. So, here are no disease students. You have heard that coronavirus has spread ہمارا <laughs> And at yet another level, class biases are playing out with many residents in housing societies even refusing to pay monthly wages to their household help and talking about the virus spreading through their unhygienic ways. And this isn't only India's story. The US has seen a spike in incidents of discrimination and stigma against persons of Asian descent, those with travel history and from healthcare professionals. Now, what we're faced with in terms of the pandemic isn't a first in human history. Over the past few days, similarities have been drawn between the coronavirus and the 1918 influenza epidemic, which is more popularly known by what historian Nancy K. Bristow argues is the misnomer of the Spanish flu. Author of the book American Pandemic, The Lost Worlds of the 1918 Influenza Pandemic, she looks at the national amnesia around the epidemic and the social and cultural shape that it took. Now, a century ago, this was one of the deadliest in human history more than 50 million people around the world. And in many ways, there are comparisons to be made. The rampant fear, stockpiling of food and medicine, and the avoidance of gatherings. Now, you'd imagine that because it affected those in the 20 to 40 age group, which is largely then workers and mothers, it would change how life would be lived in the aftermath. But her research doesn't find that. In fact, it's the opposite. It actually strengthened the status quo. Bristow says... If you're living on the edge and poverty is a short step away, the pandemic is enough to throw you into a really serious deprivation. For those in the most fragile circumstances in terms of socioeconomic dynamics, the pandemic only made everything worse. Connection and the power of influence at the time really didn't shift in favor of challenging old divisions. We're again being challenged to look at these borders and demarcations because wherever and whoever you are and whatever life you lead, the biggest concern in this moment is safety. And not just safety for our loved ones, but also care and concern for literally anybody who crosses our path. Because the thing is, we're all in this together. And we're unified in that shared experience of wanting to protect. Now, our behavior affects the safety of others, but it's not just the negative that flows through a network. It's also the positive. 
Faced with a pandemic that requires distance and an avoidance of gatherings, a question I find myself circling back to is, how do I choose to respond to this? And in the face of shared humanity, is it even possible to rethink and rewire patterns of separation and division? Now already, even in the face of high levels of anxiety, people are responding with hope. For elderly people in their vicinity, for instance, younger people have organized to deliver groceries or cooked meals so that senior citizens don't have to take care of themselves. With senior citizens, some of the most vulnerable and anxious sections across the country, an NGO in Mumbai is setting a beautiful example. Selfless Samaritans have taken it upon themselves to supply food to senior citizens living alone. NGO called Roundtable India has organized 200 volunteers to target different parts of Mumbai. Using social media, they are pinpointing apartment complexes and getting food delivered to senior citizens living alone there. In another instance, Food and water is being refilled on a street where people take their dog out for a walk so that stray animals are not left hungry. Let's never forget that while humans are suffering, urban animals like stray dogs are also left in the lurch. Meet Dharmendra, a Delhi resident who cooks meals and then sets off on his motorcycle to distribute these meals to street dogs. Dharmendra takes the pains to make food that the dogs will actually relish. In Mumbai, to ensure that the supply of chai doesn't stop for watchmen who are continuing to provide services for housing societies, members of the community take a flask of tea around to them three times a day. So in these small ways, it's really paying attention to people in and around you and being able to extend care to them and for them. Now, in addition to this, crowdsourcing efforts are also underway to extend support for daily wage workers and migrant and migrant workers who are walking hundreds of kilometers to try and get home. For me, knowing that these efforts are ongoing feels far more nourishing than tracking COVID-19 death counts and being gripped by fear. And what's also interesting is that none of these efforts have been organized by the state. What they reflect instead is what Christakis says is, our innate proclivities that reflect our natural social state, a state that is, as it turns out, primarily good, practically and even morally, In his research studying human societies, Christakis explicitly points out that though we often tend to remember violent and gory parts of our history, alongside that, there also exists this very real and lived experience of deep compassion and kindness. In different ways, all of us are dealing with enormous change and uncertainty. Yet even physically cut off from each other, our social network offers immense possibility to practice shared humanity, to build communities of care, and to conduct acts of kindness and generosity. And even as we ask questions of our government and seek social justice and equality in how they respond to this, just as critical are these acts of humanity. I wanted to leave you with this poem by Naomi Shihab Nye. It's called Kindness and it speaks exactly to that. Kindness Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, You must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore. Only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to gaze at bread. 
only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, it is I you have been looking for. And then goes with you, everywhere, like a shadow or a friend. This month, we'll be sharing and curating a whole host of organizations and groups that are working towards alleviating the suffering and loss caused by the pandemic. This will include a wide variety of categories, from mental health support to food and economic support across different cities. We'll also be curating different resources across mediums to help continue the reflection process that we hope to embark on through these days of lockdown. Do keep in touch with our social media spaces. You can access them at www.thecuriositycollective.org. In our next special episode, we continue to look at connection in the time of the coronavirus, but this time at a planetary level. Don't forget to subscribe to the Curiosity Collective podcast on Anchor or wherever else you choose to listen to podcasts and keep up with the series. Special thanks to Ishwar Shankar and Gauri Omanakutan at BRC for lending us their voices for this episode. This episode was made with the support of Srinidhi Raghavan and Arpita Joshi and produced by the Bangalore Recording Company.